I wonder if you have any idea how much money you're going to spend for Christmas. It was interesting to me to see a statistic provided by a group called the American Research Group. They've done some studies on what people plan to spend on Christmas. And I take it that uh, this is like a household spending. And for 2017, uh, do you think it's above 1000 or below 1000 per household? You think above $983 is what they've uh, come up with as a kind of an average number that people are saying we're going to spend, uh, we're planning, and, and I would emphasize the word plan. The survey is based upon what people plan to spend more than what they actually do spend. It was interesting to me that that's up 6% from last year, which was $929 uh, per family. It actually peaked, I was surprised about this, it peaked actually back in 2001. They've been doing this survey and research on how much people plan to spend for Christmas actually since 1985, and when it started it was $289. It peaked in 2001 at $1,052, and back in 2009 it had taken a dip down to 417. So in 2001, it was over 1,000. By 2009, it was down to 417. Now it's back up bumping 1,000 on what we plan to spend for Christmas. Now part of another survey that I saw was a survey of mothers and how much they spend, how much they plan to spend on their children. And I think they should ask the question, which child? But um, what moms plan to spend on Christmas comes out to an average of $271 per child. But, and if there's any kids in here, you can hope this is your mom. One in every 10 moms spikes up to $500. So out of every 10 moms that they talk to, and the average is $271 that they plan to spend on each of their children... Diego, one in ten moms spend $500. So work the system, buddy. Work the system. All right? I was also interested in seeing that presents aren't the only thing that Americans are spending money on this Christmas. They're spending money on Christmas decorations. Go figure. Six billion dollars Americans will spend on Christmas decorations. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the popular lighting that people are into or converting their old lights into the new LED lights. going to save a lot of money if you do that. And the popularity of the inflatable lawn ornaments. The most popular is the 16-foot Santa Claus and I will stop right there and save you my rant about those and what I wish I could do to them. Um, one year when I was talking about that, I ended up talking about wanting to shoot them. It seems like lately I've been wanting to shoot things. I'm sorry. I actually need to apologize. Um, last week, I think it was, um, or was it the week before, um, I was talking about shooting people for putting trash in my yard. And I... I tell you, that stayed with me all week. I really do apologize for that. I, I would not shoot anybody for that. I mean, <laughs> you can come in my house in the middle of the night and find out what I'll shoot for, but I felt badly, and any boys and girls that were here, please know that your pastor wants to share Christ with people more than he wants to shoot them most of the time. So 
I just felt badly about that. But um, one year when I was talking about wanting to shoot um, those lawn ornaments, somebody put a brand new Red Rider BB gun on my desk all wrapped up. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty funny. Six, six billion dollars on decorations um, and all of that. We plan to spend money. Can I ask you a question? Are you planning to worship? I've been convicted in my own life about how easy it is to not really worship. And we plan so many things. We plan our parties. We plan our gifts. We plan our spending. We plan our trips. We plan our hospitality. Are we planning to be worshipers this Christmas? I want us to think about worship this Christmas, this Sunday, and the the upcoming two. I want us to begin by creating a comparison and an analysis of some worshipers in our New Testament. We'll begin with uh, perhaps the most famous worshipers of all at Christmas time, and that is the wise men who came from the East, the Magi. And so will you turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, and let's read, uh, reread uh, once again this familiar passage, recognizing that we're out of order of the birth of our Lord. But as we begin our worship series, I wanted to challenge us today on the cost of worship. The cost of worship. Let's read, first of all, Matthew chapter 2 and this account of the Magi who came from the East. I reference that it's out of order with the, with the birth of Christ, recognizing that this came sometime after the birth of Christ. Perhaps our Lord was even a toddler at the time that this occurred. It's not clear from Scripture exactly when this happened, but evidently some months, if not a year or so, following the birth of our Lord. But perhaps we have demonstrated here for us some of the most intentional worshipers of the Christmas story. The Christmas story is, by the way, filled with occurrences of worship, and we'll be looking at them in the weeks in the next couple weeks. Let's read together Matthew 2, following along in your text of God's Word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophets. And then they quote Micah 5 too. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what, the time, what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Imagine this in your mind's eye. And they fell down and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Clearly... 
clearly the most specific account of intentional worship in the Christmas story. Traveling from a faraway land specifically to bow down before the newborn king. It's interesting to me as we progress through the Gospel of Matthew in our study of Matthew, that the very next account that we come to following the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 26 is a story about expensive worship. I'm on course to conclude our studies in Matthew with the resurrection account on Easter Sunday. And so let's take another bite out of Matthew and let's look at Matthew chapter 26. What we want to do is we want to look at this worship account and we want to compare and contrast it with the Magi and then later in our sermon we will focus entirely upon this worship account of our Lord Jesus that we might make application to our own lives, that we might grow in our heart of worship for Christ, specifically thinking through the cost of worship this morning. So our Lord, after he finishes the Olivet Discourse, talking about his second coming, comes off the mountain and now uh, is just two days away from Passover, and he makes the fourth prophetic pronouncement about his death to his disciples that we've encountered in Matthew. This is the fourth time that Jesus says this. Let's begin with verse 1 of Matthew 26. We will read through verse 13. And when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, so all these sayings is the Olivet Discourse and his teaching on the last times, the end times and his return. And he says to his disciples, verse 2, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. There it is, just as clear as can be. And then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. So they were coming up with plans, and I would take it alternative plans, that they might kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now it's interesting, we will find out when we look at John's account that what happens next, Matthew has a little bit out of order and we're actually backing up six days to where Jesus was in Bethany before he came into Jerusalem. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, and so, so just a point of detail, when it says... In verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. He's talking about what was happening two days from the time he came off the, the Mount of Olives. And then Matthew records then this occurrence of what happened six days before. Verse 6, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I think it's most helpful for us, though we've been reading passages of Scripture already, um, to, to now turn to John's account of what certainly seems to be 
additional detail about this very occurrence. John chapter 12 is where we find it. This account is in Mark chapter 14, and then John chapter 12. It's at Bethany. John is going to name names and give details of exactly where they are. So in Matthew's account, he says, this is at the home of Simon the leper in Bethany. In John chapter 12, beginning with verse 1 through verse 8, we surely have the same account with additional details. Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Okay, so Matthew didn't tell us that they were at Simon the leper's house to have a dinner in celebration of what Jesus did in raising Lazarus from the dead. That just happened in John chapter 11. We're in the beginning of John chapter 12 here. Don't you think that's a great reason for a party? Oh man, get the neighbors together. We're going to have a great feast. Lazarus is alive and our Lord Jesus is coming back to town. He's in town. So they gave a dinner for him. I take that pronoun him to be for Jesus. It's possible that it was for Lazarus specifically. Martha served and Lazarus, but the way it says Lazarus was one of those reclining. Him is Jesus. Lazarus was there reclining with him, Jesus, at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, parentheses, he was who was about to betray him, close parentheses, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He was an embezzler. And Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. It seems reflective of the same story. Surely there weren't two similar accounts that took place. Just perspectives from John, perspectives from Matthew, pointing out different detail. What I'd like to do under point one is I would like us, in the spirit of Christmas, and couching the story of Mary and her worship of our Lord, which was a very expensive worship, I'd like to compare and contrast it with that of the worship of the Magi. And then for the latter half of our outline, we'll focus entirely on Matthew. So we begin with, in our notes, a comparison of worship. First of all, I want you to see that in both counts, the Magi and Mary, their worship was Christ-centered. They were driven to worship Christ. And now think about it. They were at Simon the leper's home. And this was a celebration of Jesus. They were there because Jesus was going to be there. Bethany was a place that our Lord evidently loved to visit. We're very familiar with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Remember, Jesus had been in their home before, and it's recorded for us that Martha had become very frustrated with Mary because Martha was the server. She was the one who was preparing the meal. Mary is at our Lord's feet just taking in his teaching, and Martha finally sticks her head around the corner from the kitchen and says, Lord, would you please tell my sister to help me prepare the food? It's interesting, and here Mary is the worshiper. It is interesting, isn't it, how personality enters in to worship style. And how some people worship better corporately, some individually, 
Some handle quietness very well. Others, their minds light up with all of the things they need to do or tasks unfinished. If they're alone and quiet, others are able to focus on one thing at a time. Others of us have 39 things going through our mind all the time, and it's a plague. There they are. The contrast of Mary and Martha is a study in itself of worship. But let's think about Simon the leper. He was likely healed by Jesus. Interesting, isn't it, that he's referenced by Matthew as Simon the leper. Now they're at his house having a banquet, so I would take it that he no longer has leprosy or they wouldn't be at his house. He wouldn't be in town. He would be away. And I take it that he had leprosy long enough that he was known as the guy in town who had leprosy. Oh, Simon, yeah, he was the one who had leprosy. I mean, that is the... That was the plague of this day. That was the cancer of the day. That, that, is, that is a guy who had a death sentence over his head. He had to leave his family. He had to leave his community. He had a difficult life. It is a horrible death, leprosy was at that time. Your flesh begins to melt. You begin, the disease eats your extremities, the tips of your fingers, your nose, your ears. You end up with seeping cavities where once you had a nose and ears and your fingers come fall off and dry up. And, and, and the next thing you know, you become septic from infection and, and you die. And there was no cure until what? Until Jesus comes into town. And Jesus comes into town. We don't know the story exactly, whether he was one of the ten or what, but our Lord healed Simon evidently. But he's a little bit like, you know, Joe the drunk, who now knows Jesus, and everybody still calls him when they're saying, you know, I was over at Joe's house, you know, Joe the drunk. But he's not drunk anymore. It's a, you know, we're over at Simon's house, you know, Simon, Simon the leper who used to be a leper. No wonder he's happy to open his home. No wonder there's joy in his heart to have Jesus. Jesus had transformed his life. And so you have a Christ-centered evening or event going on in this home where Christ is the focal point, first of all, because he healed Simon of leprosy, no doubt. It's likely that's what happened. It was indeed, John tells us, a dinner in honor of Jesus. It was a dinner in honor of Jesus, not for Simon's sake so much as the celebration of Lazarus' resurrection. And what a moment that was. You recall that in John 11. Mary and Martha knew that our Lord would care about Lazarus. Remember when they sent a note through a runner to Jesus? The one Lord, the one you love is sick. So they didn't say Lazarus. They just, Lord, your buddy, your best buddy. There was a strong relationship here between these families. And remember, our Lord purposely delayed until he knew, knowing what he was going to do. And there he demonstrated his authority over death, calling Lazarus from the grave so that he could say these words and they would be chiseled in the stone of Scripture, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he die, yet shall he live. What important words. What important words. And so they're there to celebrate the power and authority and the resurrection of Lazarus through the resurrection power of our Lord Jesus Christ, a dinner to honor Jesus. And there she does. She pours her perfume on Jesus. So clearly, unmistakably, Mary's worship is Christ-centered. You don't have to turn to Matthew 2. You can picture that story that we just read of the Magi. Let's just think about them. Now, they studied the sky, didn't they? 
It says they were astronomers, and so they, they somehow knew that there was some kind of a, a phenomenon that would indicate this spectacular event of the king of the Jews being born. They were in pursuit of Jesus. So they studied the sky, but not only that, they searched the scriptures and they knew the prophetic accounts. They searched the scriptures in pursuit of Jesus. There's a lesson there for us, isn't there? You want to know Jesus, you have to search the scriptures. Thirdly, they came and the focal point of their event, their event, their mission was accomplished when? When they got to the house where Jesus was. And there was the child with his mother. And can you see these grown men with their entourage? No doubt servants and animals and baggage. We don't know how many. It was no doubt a relatively large group of people that caused quite a stir. Quite important men. And grown men come in and bow down before a baby. What a scene. What a scene. They were there to worship Jesus. We look at Mary, we look at the Magi, their worship was Christ-centered. As I was thinking about that, it prompted me to encourage us church-wide to make sure we're not embarrassed at all to have Christ-centered worship or parties this Christmas. You know, we plan a lot of things, don't we? Got to get the house ready, got to get the food ready, got to have the decorations, got to have the music on, got to get it all, got to get your games ready for your party. Where's Christ? And don't be embarrassed to make your party somehow intentionally Christ-centered. You can think of something. You can think of a way. I mean, whether it would be to read the Christmas story or whether it would be to have a prayer time, whether it would be to have a, a song time, a sing-along. I don't know what you would do. Testimonies? Why would we be embarrassed at our parties to talk about what Jesus has done in our lives at Christmas time. It seems relatively appropriate to me. I guarantee you Simon the leper didn't care who he was talking to. There's somebody he's going to talk about. It'd be Jesus. And Lazarus is going to talk about Jesus. Because why? Because he changed my life. And I think I'm looking at a room full of people where most of us have had our lives dramatically transformed by Jesus. Why wouldn't we have Christ-centered worship this Christmas, right? Let's think about how we can do that. Let's contrast their worship now, letter B. Specifically here, what I want to focus on is the idea that in my impression of the passage, there's some indication that she planned because she had, Mary had this expensive perfume with her and she's evidently not at her own home. She's at Simon the leper's home. But what I would suggest, the way the passage comes across to me, is that Mary's worship was spontaneous. She went to the party at Simon the leper's home in celebration of her brother Lazarus' resurrection, and her worship broke out. She just couldn't contain herself. Why did she have her spikenard with her? She had her alabaster jar of perfume with her, so she must have thought at some level... And what it says, though, in Mark 14's passage, he gives the deal. It says there that he broke the jar. She broke the jar. 
Was, does he mean that she broke the seal? Was this sealed up to preserve it? The jar was made out of alabaster, which is some kind of gypsum. It would have been carved, probably. It was probably a beautiful container, kind of like expensive perfume would be stored in today. The jar itself, or the container itself, is appropriate for the quality of the ointment within, and it's, it's beautiful. And it says that she broke it because she didn't care about the jar. She didn't care about the ointment. It was all about her worship of Christ. And there it is. In contrast, what could have been more intentional in worship than the Magi? So Mary, I believe, was spontaneous in the spillover of her heart. She cannot hold back her worship and her adoration. He's worthy of the most valuable thing I have. And I'll break it and spill it on him. The Magi study and think. And who in the world knows where they came up with their information? Many Bible scholars think that it goes way back to Daniel being in Persia. And that Daniel's the one who taught the scriptures. And that it was passed on for generations. And that some of these men studied the texts of the prophets as part of their literature, and they understood that God would send a Messiah. They wanted to be there. How intentional can it be to pack up your camel and go across the desert and travel and travel and travel and lodge and travel to get to the place where I can kneel in front of Jesus? I think it's appropriate this Christmas for us to have spontaneous worship and intentional worship, wouldn't you say? That we would be characterized by Christ-centered, spontaneous, and intentional worship this Christmas. Thirdly, I want you to see that their worship was costly, and this is the theme point of the message, the title point. Their worship was costly. I've already referenced Mary, this alabaster flask. It held pure nard. It was probably from the country of India. and It was something that traders had brought through. It was a fragrant ointment. It's interesting, and I just listed it there. To We can click through this. Matthew 26, 7 says that it, is, it was an expensive ointment. Mark 14 says very costly. And Mark 14 uh, says that it was more than 300 denarii it was worth. A denarii was every bit of a day's wage, about a day's wage. So 300 denarii is the biggest part of a year's wage. She's dumping on her Lord Jesus that which cost a whole year of work to accumulate for the average person. It was expensive. It cost her something. It was also criticized. In the Magi, we see in Matthew 2, without going back, we recognize that they were... It says when they got there, they were opening their treasures. Treasures. At least, if not more, they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Expensive spices, expensive perfumes, and gold, which needs no explanation. Cost something. So you know, it's possible that once... The Magi left those gifts that Joseph and Mary were more wealthy than they'd ever been in their whole life before. We don't know how much they gave. 
But as they worshiped, something inside them welled up with the appropriateness that somehow the expression of my worship demands that I give something of value in honor of Jesus Christ. So let's critique now Mary's worship. We'll just leave the Magi and you can fit that in your own thinking. I'm fascinated by Mary and and this occurrence. And as we look at it and some lessons that we can, can learn, clearly her worship was based upon deep gratitude for her Savior. Deep gratitude for her Savior. We've already kind of referenced this, but her gratitude was based on the fact that Jesus had rescued her family. Jesus had rescued her family. He had resurrected her brother from the dead. You talk about rescuing my family. You saved the life of our beloved brother. You've saved us grief upon grief. You've provided for us. You have rescued us from the deepest of tragedies that we could have experienced. Our dear brother put in the grave. And remember that for three days they had been wailing and grieving and their hearts were broken. And so imagine the relief when Lazarus came back after they moved the stone and removed his grave clothes. So as Mary goes to Simon the leper's house, she's excited to see Jesus. No wonder she's excited to see Jesus. He's the one who rescued her family. He's her favorite person in the whole world. He's the one who transforms lives. It's very possible that Simon the leper was a friend of hers or a neighbor. Someone in the community that she affiliated with or associated with. And he healed my dear friend Simon. Why wouldn't I just love to be with my Savior when he's changed my life? Do you know that feeling? The one who transformed my life. How could I not worship him? Letter B, based, it's also based upon very close and personal relationship. We know, as I referenced before, that Jesus had been in their home. No doubt he had lodged in their home. He had eaten at their table. He found refreshment in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so Mary's worship is very much based upon relationship. She had a relationship with Jesus. And, and it led her to worship If you do not have a relationship with Jesus this Christmas, you really can't worship. Because worship is based upon relationship. The warning there is that worship without relationship will be hollow and ritualistic. That's why liturgy, liturgy and and all churches have a form of liturgy. It just depends on how repetitious they're going to be or how organized they're going to be. But when we fall into the routines of our, for example, our Sunday morning worship services, that if we haven't been walking with Jesus all week and we don't, aren't in, an, in a place of joy and enjoyment with our relationship with Christ, liturgy is hollow. It's meaningless. It's just words to be uttered repetitiously over my mouth. A warning for us this Christmas, worship without relationship will be hollow and ritualistic. I believe that Mary's worship was also based upon the cross. It was based upon the reality of the cross. Let's look in chapter 26 at verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she had done it to prepare me for burial. I would suggest 
that as our Lord commends Mary for this act of worship, he scolds the disciples for their hard-heartedness. He points out that she will have a testimony through the centuries of this moment. I would suggest that Mary got his words. It was no doubt reported what he said. If she wasn't present in 26.2 with the disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Somehow Mary got it and the disciples didn't. I would suggest that Mary understood that her time with her Lord was very limited. I'm not going to suggest that she understood the atonement and all of its realities, that she understood the resurrection and its power. Uh, I, I'm not sure she really could visualize what was happening, but somehow she knew in a way that she was doing the right thing by pouring these burial perfumes upon him even before his death. Our Lord said, it is a beautiful thing and she's preparing me for my death. At some level, you have to believe that Mary realized that this was related to our Lord's death at the cross. I think that cross-based worship is important even at Christmas. You recognize that cast across the manger is the shadow of the cross, right? The whole point of the birth of our Lord is that he would go to the cross as the ultimate sacrificial lamb and substitute into our place so that our sin could be laid upon him and his righteousness could be endowed upon us, that we would stand justly before a holy God. The most important part of my whole life is do I know Christ in that way? Is he my redeemer? Is he the one who has paid the penalty for my sin? Is my faith and trust in that alone that I can stand before God? I've been talking to Chris Paulson about going to heaven. We've been talking pretty seriously about things. And he says, Pastor, please pray for me that I will show my family how a godly man enters the presence of the Lord. And the most important thing about Chris Paulson is his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He was not always a man in Christ. He was far from Christ. And in his early 20s, the gospel transformed him. Cross-based worship. What the cross means to me because the baby was born and went to the cross is based upon the spillover of her heart. I've kind of referenced that already. She could not not worship when she was around Jesus. It was in her heart of love for Christ and it just spilled over. But notice that she was criticized in her worship, wasn't she? Look what it says in the text. In verse 8 of chapter 26, And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum of money, 300 denarii, and given to the poor. It's interesting, they had just heard our Lord on the Olivet Discourse say that if you want to be a sheep and not a goat, then give to the poor a drink of water. Give them medicine when they're sick. Go to visit the poor. Go to visit them in their affliction. And in prison, take care of the poor. And so they're somehow using that as an application. But in their hearts, they're very upset with her. They do not appreciate her worship. Let's look at their criticism. Why did the disciples criticize Mary's beautiful act of worship? Our Lord said she had done a beautiful thing. Says the disciples in 26, 8 and 9, we just read, were indignant and they called it a waste. 
I tell you, you've got to be really careful calling somebody's act of worship a waste. And notice what John says, that Judas was the one who was most vocal, evidently, of the disciples. He had been embezzling out of the treasury bag. He was a dirty, rotten thief. He loved money. And it says, we should have sold this and given the money to the poor, yeah, so that I could have a few more coins to slip out of the bag and into my own pocket. First of all, I think they did not appreciate her deep joy and love for Christ. She, the spillover of her heart and her joy was so intense that it irritated them. Do you know what it is to be around joy-filled people and they irritate you? Would you stop singing? Would you stop humming? What's wrong with you? You're really happy today. <laughs> well, you want to be a, a grouch like you? What is it about the joy of other people that would make us grouchy? I think that's a little bit what's going on. What's with this woman? She's so filled with joy and dancing around and so happy. They did not appreciate her lavish gift for Christ. This is a huge gift she gave. And they're critical. It was for Christ. It was none of their business. What a moment those men watched as she came and pulled the pin out of her hair and her hair fell. And John says that she put the ointment on his feet and took her hair and began to wipe the ointment with her hair. An act of incredible humility and in no way a reference of sensuality. Of absolute love and adoration and worthiness that I would wash your feet with the most expensive perfume I have with my hair. You are my Lord and my Savior. Matthew says it's, she started probably by dumping it on his head. It occurred to me that in some ways, and this is why I was thinking about the spontaneity of her worship, that in some ways... There are acts of worship that are really intended to be private acts of worship. And when they are observed publicly, people will almost always be critical or distracted. Now, I'm not saying that she was inappropriate at all, but in her worship, she was being observed by people at that time. And it was a very personal, a very personal worship time for her. And these men are critical of her. So we have to be careful knowing the balance of our expression. I'm not critical of her. And there are times when people in worship corporately will begin to express themselves at a level that in some ways maybe should be maintained in private or personally, but we're not to be critical of that. There they are, and it's the spillover of their heart. You better be careful about criticizing that. And they just simply, let her see, did not have tender hearts for Christ. They were lovers of money. They were thinking logically, not emotionally and in worship. They just didn't appreciate her joy. They didn't appreciate the expense. They were cheap worshipers. They wanted to worship, I guess, but they just didn't want it to cost very much. In conclusion, what are some cautions for us this Christmas? We must guard against contrived gestures. Contrived gestures. I, I'm not doing a very good job on this point, but let me just reference it briefly. So you watch somebody worship out of the spillover of their hearts. So like the men watched Mary 
in this incredibly intimate act of worship, demonstrate her love for her Lord by breaking and spilling on him this expensive perfume and wiping his feet with her hair. And sometimes when we watch authentic worship go on, we want to emulate that at another time. We want other people to see us have beautiful worship. And I think we have to be very, very careful in the gestures of our worship that it is authentically the spillover of the heart and not some kind of a put-on. Oh, this is the time in the service where we act like this because we're worshiping. And it really isn't a spontaneous, natural spillover of the heart. We want to guard against callousness, don't we? A callousness that the disciples evidently had because their worship was not based upon relationship. They're like hard-hearted old guys. We have to be careful, letter C, of criticizing the worship of others. I've referenced that some. It's really not our business how other people worship. You know that? Some of the things I've tried to do is teach our men on the platform how to pray publicly. And it's interesting, isn't it? You hear their hearts and you hear the different personalities come through in prayer. And one of the things that I've been very sensitive about is I never want to be critical of somebody's prayer. Who am I to criticize how somebody prays? It's the same thing with worship. Who am I to criticize how you worship? That is such a personal thing between you and the Lord and the spillover of your heart and the relationship that you have and the, the way that he's transformed your life. It's cross-based worship because you know that you used to roll up dollar bills and snort coke up your nose and you wouldn't even be alive today if you hadn't been to the cross. And it's cross-based worship based on the transformation of your life and what Jesus has done for your family. And I'm going to stand over here and say, look at that guy. Very, very careful to not criticize cheap worship that costs us nothing is the final thing that we need to be careful of. You might take time to reread this story of David. He had sinned dramatically and grossly and against the warning of his generals when he did an inventory on his soldiers, his armies. He was puffed up with pride, evidently. And so he counted... He did a census of the nation and the soldiers. He was warned not to do it. So God sent a plague and began to kill thousands of people with this plague. He gave David some options. People died because of David's sin. And David realizes that he needs to worship. He realizes he needs to sacrifice before the Lord. He realizes that he needs an encounter with the living God. And he needs to shut off the plague. And he needs to confess his sin. And he needs to worship God. And he goes and he is looking for a place to worship. And a guy offers him his oxen and, and timbers and lumber for a fire. And you can have my oxen and you can take his yoke and you can burn it. And you can sacrifice right now. And David refused it. He said, I refuse. And he ended up buying and paying the guy for it. And he bought it off of him. When the guy wanted to give him the implements for worship, David bought them. And he said, because I refuse to offer to God that which cost me nothing. I think that characteristically, we worship pretty cheap at Christmas time. We're pretty caught up in unbelievably nonsensical things. 
that are nothing other than a ploy from the pit of hell to distract us from meaningful, deep, spillover worship of Christ. Now, I don't know. I don't know. See, Jesus isn't here in the flesh to pour expensive perfumes. So you have to listen to the prodding of the Spirit and what it is. What is it that you would do as an act of worship that cost you something this Christmas? Let's guard against cheap worship. May the Lord use this to sharpen our focus on King Jesus. Let's stand and close in prayer, please. And so, Father, we turn to you grateful for your plan of salvation in the incarnation of Christ and sending him to be born of Mary, to go to that cross, to be our substitute, to be our Savior, to transform our families and our lives. And we want to be worshipers. And we don't want to be cheap worshipers this Christmas, Lord. Would you please help us in this way, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.